0: Hello, and welcome to Foreign Correspondence, a podcast about journalists. I'm Jake Spring. Our guest today hails from the small town, or rather village, of McFarland, Wisconsin, population 8,000-something. That matters because it just so happens that's where I'm from. Our families have been friends for a long time, but as we'll get into in this episode, we only really connected later on through journalism. It's been great to follow Meredith's career because it's been so vastly different from mine, and it's different from everyone I've talked to so far on the show. First, her work has been deeply political since the start not straight-laced reporting, but journalism with a point of view. She started out in magazines, and while her credits extend to online publications and TV, I would say regardless of the outlet, she takes a more magazine-style approach, whereas I'm more steeped in newspapers. Her latest job working as a news producer on the Netflix show Patriot Act with Hassan Minhaj is an even further departure. It's great to see that two people with similar backgrounds from the same hometown can take vastly different paths in the industry and succeed. Regardless of where our careers go from here, I think we will at least be safe to say that we're the most notable journalists to come out of the village of McFarland. This is also an exciting episode Episode because it's the first one I recorded in person on my recent trip to New York City. Can you hear the eye contact? Should all my podcasts be recorded in the presence of pets? Let me know on Twitter at, at foreignpod or email me at jake.spring at gmail.com. And now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Meredith Clark. We'll set the scene a little bit. We're in Ridgewood, Queens, in your what is a palatial apartment for New York? <laughs> and this is the first one I'm doing in person. Tell me a little bit about uh, what kind of week you've had. Yeah,
1: uh, yeah. I mean, it's been a little bit crazy because i am going into the hardcore preparation cycle for a new episode taping for my for my job which we'll get into but that means that i've had very long days and lots of lots of waiting around so it's it's been intense but also just have been enjoying the lovely summer weather and looking forward to the end of this production cycle of 6 weeks so that i can actually have a bit of a summer and relax a little bit cool yeah. and
0: yeah i should say your dog is also here uh, Rosa Lexenbarker, Rosie.
1: Yes, Rosa is sitting right beneath me, staring, hoping that I would pet her. So I might have to reach down and do that every so often.
0: <laughs> she seems pretty quiet, though. I was just going to say that in case she shows up on the podcast.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. she somehow actually has gotten used to podcasts or people talking about things while she's around and doesn't interject too much. But if she does bark, it'll be a sharp, attentive, you know, demanding uh, sound from a very cute corgi
0: yeah they our cat has definitely gotten on the podcast she's extremely vocal and oh, gets yeah. very confused when i shut the door to any room so um, i guess well. let's uh get into it so yeah we usually start with like where you're from all that but you're from my hometown is the interesting thing
1: i am yeah we've yeah grew up in mcfarland wisconsin and you know our parents are very close friends and travel buddies so go way back yeah <laughs> they before wouldn't. either of us actually and then yeah we've known each other known of each other since well before either of us ever thought about being journalists, so
0: <laughs> right, yeah, they went. Uh, our parents went to Vietnam this year together. Was yeah, that, this that year, was
1: it was February. They spent three weeks just tracking around. The luxury hotels of Southeast Asia. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Basically.
1: Yeah. Basically. I mean it seemed like they had a great time. So it seemed I'm I aspire to have that kind of adventure-filled retirement if the world exists or retirement exists in forty years.
0: <laughs> right. So you you were older than me, so I we didn't ever actually cross paths in McFarland. I don't no, think No, because
1: I think it was my younger sister and your older brother knew each right. other in high school. So we were never quite in the same same section. But it's a small town. So at some point when you were getting into journalism and moving around, we ended up getting in touch or our parents connected us somehow because you had questions yeah. to ask. And then since then, it's been a lot of fun to watch you do, you know, go through the Reuters training program and figuring out being in China and, and now being in Brazil. So it's it's been nice to – and I think we may be some of the only journalists from from home, so it's kind of. I think so. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. So it's a very small club. It seems good to stay stay in solidarity.
0: Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. I think the first time we met, we got coffee or something, and you were you were fact checking then for. I think Rolling Stone, yeah, most weekly, been. and yeah, that yeah. seemed like crazy cool <laughs> to me at the time. As somebody who was like, I was, I couldn't even get an internship in journalism at that.
1: point. Oh my but, god! Yeah, um, well, it was, it was a bit of, yeah, it was a weird stroke of luck having because I, after my internship, when I was applying for jobs, I ended up uh, the. The internship I did at the nation had a really intense fact-checking component that mm. was that meant that people who had done it ended up going to a lot of places and were able to get fact-checking gigs and so it was kind of the easiest way to get started and and get access to the universe um, without competing against a bunch of people who had you know family members that worked at The New Yorker or, or whatever connections made it a little easier to to open some of those doors mm-hmm. and so uh, did you grow up all 18
0: years in mcfarland
1: or had you guys moved in or... no no i was uh, my parents still live in the house that they had bought before i was born and oh. uh so i was yeah i lived there grew up there spent all my time trying to get out and then you know <laughs> but then didn't go that far because i went to the university of wisconsin in madison so i had a, a long series of or a long long stretch of being close to home before moving out here and uh but that was great i will be forever a cheerleader for growing up in the Madison area because it was full of opportunities to learn about culture and the exposure to politics and opportunities to explore different progressive activism and see how people were organizing Um, has been really useful as I've gotten to know people out here and and covered different things.
0: Mm -hmm. And your parents, your mom were... In the school, right with Mm -hmm. the yeah,
1: she went back to school and got her teaching certificate. When I was in high school, I think she'd finally gotten bored of being a stay-at-home mom, but that makes sense because she had teenagers. And and then my dad worked for 30 odd years for the state government. When he retired, he was working for the Department of Transportation and running the Bureau of Local Roads and Transit. So very civic minded and education focused people, which was nice because they did find a lot of ways to encourage me and my sister to explore our curiosity and get involved in, in cool things. So part of how I ended up becoming interested in journalism is through some of the stuff that they you know were willing to expose me to or send me to, which was nice.
0: Mm-hmm. When did, did you first start? to get interested in journalism? Was it in high school or earlier?
1: Yeah, there was a thing called the Capital Times Youth Editorial Board that the, at the time he was the deputy opinion editor. Now I forget like what his exact title is, but John Nichols, who works oh, at the Capital yeah. Times and for the Nation magazine as their Washington correspondent, he had set this up. And so a bunch of young people who were interested in politics and civic issues and journalism would come and sit in the conference room at, at the newspaper offices in Madison and then talk through, issues that we thought were important and try and argue over whether like how we would want to see the paper cover it and like get a little bit of a sense of how the newspaper was actually running and through that was my big exposure to how things started running and so it was always something I was thinking about and but then I thought for a while maybe I would go into politics because I Mm -hmm. got really into campaign volunteering when I was in college and it was ultimately when the Iraq war started in 2003 I was infuriated by how badly the press had botched the mm-hmm. the run up to it and something about that really made me decide I wanted to try and get into doing a better job like finding some way to do a better job at telling stories that seemed to matter than it seemed like I had watched as everybody was just parroting this nonsense and mischaracterizing the protests against it, which ultimately mm-hmm. really led to. I mean, tons of people have died, and our world is still super messed up. <laughs> right, right. So um, that was that was the moment where where it it seemed reasonable, and then at some point, I think it was, and it was again, it was John Nichols that really helped me kind of go from being interested in it to getting an internship out in the, in New York, and then kind of just being encouraging while I was struggling in the salt mines so, of. Of content production,
0: <laughs> yeah, and obviously, yeah, John Nichols is a very political guy. Yeah,
1: and,
0: yeah, uh, I, I remember seeing him speak at some Kill <laughs> Moraine journalism something or other. It was a weird journalism <laughs> conference for like student journalists. And yeah, I that was sounds really about right. <laughs> by that, and you just got involved in the youth editorial board. Were you working? In- I mean,
1: I had done. I dabbled in the school paper oh, okay. at, at our school. Um, the Spartan but I, Spotlight? the Spartan Spotlight, yeah. <laughs> Although the um the level of, of passion and engagement from the other students and even the, the advisor were not exactly they weren't going to turn me into a real like gumshoe reporter. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, I yeah, I, I worked for the Spotlight and was the editor there eventually. But I remember grilling principal, his <laughs> office, and like that was about the extent of the reporting. Reporting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: It was. It was. Was not it was not set up to be big on investigative stories, uh, which is is ridiculous because we actually did have some really scandalous things happen oh, really? in high school. Yeah, when I was a freshman, one of the gym teacher was molesting a bunch of boys oh, at our school. Yeah, and
0: right before we moved <laughs> to town, and I, people, I mean, I yeah, I mean, I was in fourth grade when I moved there, and kids were talking about this. Yeah, because he was the
1: high school gym teacher and the third and fourth grade gym teacher. Yeah. So uh, so you got there just in time to not be groomed by this, yeah. this complete and total. I mean, it's okay. He went to jail. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we right. uh, but yeah, that was, even with all that, it didn't, people didn't want to dig too far. I see some of the student newspaper work that kids are doing in their schools now. And I just can't imagine how you'd have the resource, you know, where you get the resources for it, but. Right.
0: Yeah. Uh, I, I, Last I checked, the yeah the student newspaper doesn't exist anymore in McFarland. It's now some sort of online something or other. But that,
1: uh, that's so disappointing. <laughs> Although I suppose it is true that learning how to do layout is less important than probably learning how to work right. in CMS. But
0: right, yeah. And then you went to um, UW Madison mm-hmm. for college.
1: Yeah, um, I didn't study journalism. I studied political science and English. So I did still do a lot of writing and did a lot of work in studying of topics I thought I I was going to be writing that I would want to cut, like focus on. So, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm a big proponent of not needing I don't think you necessarily need to have the like a full-on journalism major. I think that it's more important to get yourself into positions where you're actually just learning how to do it and right. if you want, I mean, I think it's great if you want to, but I also think that it's useful to to get other skills and and kind of pick up a sense of what your interests might be because eventually that can turn into a beat or give you a you know give you a different perspective than just being someone who's kind of done like gotten all of the the technical stuff out of the way. And I know that, you know, and also I mean you can always waste your money and go to grad school if you really need the connections you know (laughs) yeah
0: that's true yeah i mean i didn't study journalism either i you know took a few classes but yeah it was easier to take more language courses study abroad things like that not majoring in journalism yeah yeah, becomes all-consuming journalism majors for some reason and yeah that turned out fine obviously (laughs) um But interesting, did you work on any of those student papers?
1: You know, I was connected and did some stuff for the Daily Cardinal. And and I knew a ton of people who were very involved in that. In some ways, it was an opportunity. I ended up having other stuff I was more interested in doing as far as like extracurriculars or, or work. But I did get the experience of seeing how that stuff came together and watching people who were really genuinely talented at exactly that kind of being, you know, the editor in chief or, or figuring out which section they were running and deciding to do the coverage. And the Cardinal was the, was the paper that had the more liberal bent. And so there was a large rivalry with the Badger Herald, which is the slightly more conservative uh, run by trolls, <laughs> <laughs> student paper.
0: Conservative so. for Madison, Wisconsin or conservative, conservative?
1: I mean, I would say. It, it was, it was conservative for Madison, Wisconsin, but there were if you were to look for frustrated young Republicans you could find them very easily at the oh, okay. at the Herald there were the paper that would uh, you know publish op eds about how you know shameful it was that Tucker Carlson was protested when he came to speak at the student Union and you know was brought in by some student group uh-huh. and you know it's like it's uh, so unfair that conservatives free speech is being right. you know impinged upon and I feel so d- uncomfortable because everybody in Madison is so liberal and it's so weird being a Republican from I don't know Waukesha county or wherever the hell they were from. So it was, yeah, I mean, I just like to think back to that since those divisions, I think have only gotten stronger and deeper right. as time has gone on.
0: It's interesting that you've kind of thought about it more politically from the start, because I would say at Northwestern, I, I mean, I only took three journalism classes, but it seems it's much more straight-laced there, much more all about objectivity and very like set in the ways of traditional like newspaper type journalism. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I have always come at things from a more politicized sense. And that has served me well. I don't think that everyone should necessarily do that or has to, but I I think growing up where we grew up and having parents who were very active in the community and in politics, I never really thought there was a way to do the kind of work I was hoping to do without recognizing that it couldn't have a view from nowhere and Mm -hmm. that it, it would be worthwhile to try and make a career that involved recognizing that I was telling a story about people or about an issue that required saying, no, there's, there's not a some say in here. Like this is an objective reality of importance. And, mm-hmm. and I think more people have, have started doing that, at least in some of the newer media companies that the places that are located in New York and are still s- functioning, but you know, I think it's possible to do and do responsibly. So, but yeah, I definitely had always thought that I wouldn't be very, very well cut out for a straight, just the facts journalism gig. <laughs> uh-huh.
0: Uh-huh. And yeah, I mean both sides are good. Like I I don't know that I know many people who came out and went into jobs that involved more opinion. It's all like the people I know kind of went into hard news. That's so that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you because also you know I don't know that many people work in magazines or have. So that's you know different from certainly the people I've talked to so far.
1: But what's also fascinating and, and useful is that you know the people that do your side of things when you're really bringing out you know yeah getting the facts together and doing the hard. News and really boiling down what's going on. I wouldn't be able to do what I have done without people who are doing that work. When I was fact-checking at Rolling Stone, obviously we had a you know a political bent. If I was working on a story by Matt Taibbi about Goldman Sachs, I needed people who were looking at financial documents or analyzing these trends that didn't have an agenda. And learning how to figure that stuff out, I think I do. I can do my job better as someone who has a little bit of an opinion. Ben and is working at places that have takes because there are people who recognize the value of, of being really focused on the hard news and the the stuff that people, I think, think of as less sexy. But mm-hmm. honestly, somebody has to actually to, to document reality before somebody <laughs> goes on YouTube and starts talking about false flags, something or other. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, I think it is becoming increasingly... Um, important because fewer resources are being dedicated to it. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned Matt Taibbi and is that, that Goldman Sachs piece the one that starts with the like... The um, vampire
1: squid in the blood funnel? Yeah, yeah.
0: no, at Reuters <laughs> uh, when we were getting our, you know, whatever, training, indoctrination, whatever. I do remember one editor showed that as an example. Not of something that we could do, but like a voice or something yeah. like
1: that. Yes, that's very famous and has become very famous and his... Uh, I think his particular style has fallen out of favor because that level of masculine ranting is just... <laughs> we don't need quite so much testosterone in, in the media right now. But what I learned from fact-checking was how to work with people who were interested in using their voice and how to rein them in through reverse engineering the story, essentially. I mean, uh-huh. then that's how I always looked at, at fact-checking. And it was fun. It was like doing a puzzle. And in the end, it taught me as much about how to report a story or how to write a story as having done it or working in internships and anything else because it takes a lot of work and figuring out how to to write something that has a really strong perspective and a sense of voice that is well-grounded is... Not easy to do
0: because <laughs> sometimes, yeah, you've got to just sit down and write it, and then not be as worried about the facts at first, and then go back and make sure it's all back.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you know, sometimes as you're putting it together, yeah, you've you've reported yourself to a certain spot, and then you realize, oh shoot, there's another thing I need to put in here, but you don't have that bit yet, so mm-hmm. you have to to make it work. But it's been funny how much fact checking has actually played into to things that I've worked on, and I don't always end up doing that. But my new job now includes a lot of fact checking because we have to make sure that every script that we do is based in real documented right. trends and doesn't get us sued by <laughs> some Southeast Asian dictator.
0: Right. <laughs> uh, so how, how did you get from Madison to New York? Did you, you have the internship going in or did you work uh, on the Lark? Or-
1: no, I mean, I... I ended up coming out here and writing a few stories for the Capitol Times about the protests at the, the 2004 RNC. And that was 100% just knowing Nichols and being encouraged to do it. And so I was very fortunate. When I was inside the the Madison Square Garden, when I was inside the convention and meeting some of his coworkers. one of them said, oh, I hear you're thinking of applying for the nation internship. And I had never considered <laughs> this before. I just said, yes, it seems like it would be a great opportunity. And then was locked into applying for it. <laughs> sure. And so I, I did get it and then moved out here to, to do it. And I moved in a very, like a tiny, tiny room in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, with another former nation intern, and then just started learning how to do this stuff and pitching stories and occasionally writing things that went online and making friends with some people that have turned out to be really impressive journalists in their own right and really impressive editors. And I, and then just kept doing it, somehow found a way to not run out of money at the sure. end of the
0: month. They were paying you something,
1: I at the time, we were getting a stipend of $150 a week. So at every Friday, we would get envelopes with $350 bills in them. And then... <laughs> So this was before, this was well before the nation interns actually unionized and demanded that they get a living wage. So, uh, yeah, I think they did that in 2009. So it's been a while, but do they still um, exist
0: is the other question. Yes, they do. (laughs) Uh,
1: yes, they were, they were able to successfully shame the leadership of the magazine to recognize that they should be practicing the level of respect and and labor principles that they're always writing cover stories about. And then they promptly started fundraising on how to make sure Mm -hmm. they could do it because they an old magazine that, that does fundraising drives.
0: 150 bucks a week. So that would be like 600 bucks a month. That's how much I got as a stipend when I worked at a litter agency after I graduated. And that's because that is the level where you don't have to report it on taxes or something. Yeah, like I that. think that was
1: probably very much what um, was going on. And. <laughs>
0: Which good luck surviving in New York on like six hundred bucks a month.
1: Oh right. yeah, if I hadn't had a little bit of money left over, honestly, from my student loans that I had just not <laughs> spent, I would have flamed out so quickly.
0: <laughs> right, and and so you were there for a few months, and then uh, yeah, it was to- like
1: five months, and then sort of did a bunch of odd jobs, like random publicity intern, like publicity sort of assistant fill in jobs, and working for a couple of publishing, you know, progressive publishing companies. And it took a little while, but eventually, after a little bit of bouncing and and hustling and scrambling ended up at Rolling Stone and Us Weekly. I started out doing Us Weekly fact-checking. So that was Monday. I think Monday and Tuesday nights were always really crazy because we had to send the magazine to print. And it's a gossip magazine. So it was the strangest <laughs> time to be there. But then after a few months of doing that, I ended up sort of making the transition over to Rolling Stone and started out on little things like album reviews and small features or small like profiles and slowly but surely worked up to the big the big political stories and, and investigative features.
0: Oh, how I know how it went, what I've heard, things kicked off in Wisconsin politically, and that was kind of your opportunity to start writing those bigger pieces.
1: Yeah, yeah. And um, it was when, it was after Scott Walker got elected and they rammed through Act 10 and the protests happened, I was able to, I was going to go anyway. I needed to see it because when something that huge happens in your hometown, you want to try and get a glimpse if you can. But I found, I was able to write, I think, one or two pieces for The Nation about about the protest and then was also hanging out, we had a, a bit of a it was just a weekly meetup with some friends who were also progressive journalists former In Nation interns, activists and writers that were tied into some of the protests that were happening right after in here like here in New York after the Act 10 protests. So those were the, the beginning seeds of Occupy Wall Street. So we were kind of watching that mm-hmm. come together in the, the aftermath of, of the Wisconsin Capitol application and people sleeping outside in the middle of February because they were locked out at night from the Capitol building. So it was It was very cool to watch that and then start making some of the connections that then led to basically explaining Occupy Wall Street to some of my coworkers who were sympathetic to the anti-corporate capitalism message, but I think a little bit confused about whether or not the people that were just random burnouts or if there was like a real (laughs) level of intellectual rigor there. So that was a, that was a a great opportunity. And I think that that year or so really made it possible to eventually exit from the fact checking universe and exit from Rolling Stone and, and move on to working for MSNBC as a reporter.
0: Okay. Yeah. And just for people who might not be familiar or not follow Wisconsin politics that closely, uh, those protests were principally about uh, stripping away collective bargaining rights and protests against that. And so like my dad was very involved with that because uh, he worked in unions his whole life.
1: Yeah, and it was it was especially since it was public sector unions it meant that you had a lot of like teachers protesting. And they didn't like full-on strike at different points, but there were several days where schools were closed because the teachers were all si- out sick and protesting. And sometimes the students, several high schools had big marches of students where they actually marched from one side of town or the other down to the Capitol building to join. And But yeah, you had firefighters and police officers and emergency service people. Yeah, um, thousands
0: of people, maybe yeah. more than 100,000 people down there were in f- occupying yeah. the Capitol. Yeah. Well,
1: there were a few weekends where there was definitely more than 100,000 people. People. And then there was a contingent of people. They did literally like sleep. They occupied the Capitol. Uh, they had a, a daycare station and a nurse's station and a small library. And and they were there for several weeks. And I think that contingent was somewhat started with some grad students, the teacher's assistants that were, were there. But it was a, not just young people. That was a pretty wide range of, of individuals. And, you know, for the other context, it's like this was right after the Egyptian uprising in uh-huh. Tahrir Square. And so there was a whole the, the whole thing started happening where people from around the world were ordering pizzas from this one pizza place called Ian's that's on the Capitol, like very close uh-huh. to the Capitol Square and ordering pizzas to the protesters at different times. And so they had a big board outside that shop that had a list of every country and city that somebody had ordered a pizza from. Hmm. And they they actually had like a pretty significant tally of pizzas that had been ordered from Cairo and they like looked at at the protesters in in Madison as you know, even though they were doing something completely different and had very different stakes, that they still had a sense of solidarity there and saying this was really appreciated that people were trying to fight for something that mm-hmm. mattered, and it was a really cool experience. I can't believe that that happened in like the home in our hometown, <laughs> basically. Right. Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, it didn't uh, pan out well for the you know pro-labor people, and, I mean, it's kind of sad that my dad's, like, career ended kind of, like, with that, and, like, his union was put into disarray, and, like, his job basically turned into grassroots organizing because it became very difficult to organize after that, and then they ended up, you know, leaving the state, (laughs) which, uh... (laughs) Um, yeah. you know
1: they they decamped for the one state in the Midwest that is undeniably progressive and supportive <laughs>
0: yeah. Minnesota yeah
1: yeah I mean I think that covering that and watching people figure out what was going on and then watching that kind of blow up and watching how people dealt with the defeat and the ultimate like sort of long running repercussions there i don't know i thought it was a fascinating learning experience and then as as more things happen like always thinking about the context and how you can tie these things together and see a through line of of issues that have now become everything that we were the people were protesting for or talking about in 2011 are more relevant Now, than ever, as you Mm -hmm. see some of you know, see things happening in the federal government, watching state politics in Wisconsin now reckon with the aftermath of Walker because he's no longer the governor, but the Democratic governor is dealing with a very conservative Republican legislature, and just seeing how hard it is to actually undo the damage that comes from abandoning all norms. As uh, it's weird to watch that happening back home when we seem to be on the downward slope at the like the larger scale in America. And, you know, I'm very curious to see if the people who really were inspired to become activists and organizers eight years ago, you know, watching them try to mount a real resistance and not in the weird hashtag grifter way, but the actual sort of labor resistance and connected activity that it's interesting to watch them exert the influence that I think they may not have had if there hadn't been this spark that Mm -hmm. that started up.
0: So then you went to MSNBC Mm -hmm. and you, were you working on a specific show? I'm trying to remember. I
1: started out working on Melissa Harris Perry's show. I sort of did some work for Chris Hayes, but then he got promoted to primetime. So mostly was on Melissa Harris Perry's show, which was a Saturday, Sunday, two hour live talk program. And they would do the deep dives into issues, you know, different segments where you would have long looks at race and politics and feminism and working with some of the smartest people that I've ever Encountered. I mean, they were so good. They came in on a Wednesday, and they said, "All right, well, I've been reading all of these articles, and I saw this piece about water pollution in upstate New York, and I think this is how we make it about this type of activism and this type of like environmental racism and how people work on it." And so, this is, but it's going to be all about water and watching the way that they're brains worked to come up with segment ideas Mm -hmm. was just amazing because they were able to make connections that, you know, at that point certainly felt very much like, wow, where is this even coming from? I would never have thought of it in a million years. I wasn't necessarily on the TV production side. You know, we had the sort of relaunched a website, so they had digital like reporters who would, the ideal was that you're connected to a show and you're interested in the issues that they're working on. So then you do your own reporting and then, you know, to integrate it so that either it would be supplemental to something they were working on, where they say, All right, this is the angle we're taking for this story. You know, you should write these pieces and then we'll, we can kind of discuss them. Or to say, All right, this is a piece that I'm working on, and they say, Oh, yeah, that's something we can have you on to talk about. So cool. ultimately, I sort of ended up, as things evolved, it started to get into the 2014 midterm elections. I ended up doing a lot more straight reporting. So I was covering the Wisconsin governor's election. I wrote a profile of a young woman who was basically the last person to challenge. Susan Collins with anything other than a sense of resignation. That was a really fun profile to do, like driving around Maine with this young woman who had been the former president of the ACLU of Maine, which was really neat. But then I was also working on covering several other issues. I did some human rights coverage. i covered sexual assault in the military and on college campuses mm-hmm. for a while. And then that was probably the closest to a, just a straight full-on reporting job that I've ever had. When I had colleagues who were covering reproductive rights or were covering LGBT equality or voting rights or gun violence or immigration. So I was doing a sort of weird amalgamation of human rights and civil rights violations. So I, I covered a lot of things. I was very much a generalist, but the things I remember most were doing the six or nine months that I spent on what I just call the rape beat because it was. And working on, there was a period of time where there were several botched executions or executions mm-hmm. in the U S that went horribly wrong and really torture these men to death. And so I was covering a lot of those and writing about issues surrounding the death penalty. And that was fascinating for me, but it also meant that there were several nights where I would be up until one or two in the morning, basically on call to make sure nothing went wrong. So that if it didn't, if there wasn't any sort of horrible lengthy situation, uh, then I could just sort of write it up. Mm-hmm. I had to be awake in case something happened so that we had the news that there was yet another terrible, uh, that actually you know it was a fascinating time but I think it did teach me that I need something that's a little more news adjacent than being full-on news <laughs> uh-huh. sure <laughs> which was part of why I decided to start looking for jobs and gave a shot to working for women's media because there are lots of opportunities there but even then then it's just a matter of the digital elements and the economies of, of working in digital media that just really burn you out as well sure. so the few years that I was working for women's websites was also a time of Pretty serious contraction in the media industry in general. I mean, right. probably five or six thousand jobs being lost <laughs> overall, uh-huh. and you know, ultimately that was big influence in deciding to go freelance for a while and then make the jump into TV for real. So what, what women's media did you work for again? And was it yeah.
0: full-time or freelance? Mm-hmm.
1: I was full-time. Uh, I was uh, at Refinery29 oh, yeah. um, trying to do politics and election coverage, but that was uphill battle. And then I was the news and politics editor at Glamour during the 2016 election. Right.
0: Yeah. I remember you working at Glamour. And looking back, it's interesting that those publications were trying to get more political at that time. You would think that we would be seeing more of that now. Huh? Yeah.
1: Well... In, its, in some cases it's a, a matter of resources when there's some magazines shuttered or they've gone online only there was this, a real sense that everyone was, was working around the idea it's like okay Hillary Clinton is running so there's lots of ways for us so we all have to compete to try and do the coverage of the election in case that we get the first woman president and unfortunately it then ended up that we did not have the first woman president but we have lots of other issues to, to cover and try and, and illuminate for the readers but it's always a little bit tricky because there's such an explicit Marketing and product component to women's media. I mean, mm-hmm. you're selling an actual, like, Selling a lifestyle or wellness or particular kind of style or or clothes and makeup and whatnot and there's nothing wrong with that but it does mean that it can be tough to figure out how a story that feels really serious will fit in without also feeling like maybe you're giving more time to women who aren't really allies for women. The simple Uh fact of their success means that they are worthy or they are sort of warranting of coverage. And you know, going back to being political, like I don't think someone like Joni Ernst or Martha. McSally, both U.S. senators who are very conservative Republicans. And they were also both in the military. And there are always pitches and arguments for covering people like that because they were essentially pioneers in very male spaces. Mm -hmm. But- I don't think it's noteworthy if you're a pioneer in a male space who succeeds because you're selling out other women or are championing policies that end up hurting people. And that was ultimately a huge part of why continuing down that path was really untenable because there's just not space for me and my sort of professional ethics to, I just can't make myself find a way into a story like that. Mostly it's just easier to say I wouldn't do it because I would do a terrible job (laughs) if I was trying to make it, it was freeing to kind of figure that out that out, I think it was nice to realize. But if that matters to you, that it's okay to make the decision that a certain path isn't the right one. Sure.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess when you're more allowed to be political, like there are always arguments about what paper that's reporting straight facts is leaning yeah. this way or that way. But when it is actually, you can have an opinion, then I imagine you get into more arguments possibly with your publisher <laughs> or whatever.
1: Yeah. Um, well, and if you're covering an issue and you want to have you know, the editorial line as we have a very strong perspective. The question then becomes exactly you could have that, but how far does it extend and where does it connect? And if your audience is slightly less political than you are, what do you owe them? And it's like, how many letters to the editor that say, I read you for your Bachelor recaps and your amazing, like, your profiles of inspiring women and, like, whatever book excerpts. You know, why are you bringing politics into it? I'm going to cancel my subscription. What's the critical mass point where somebody starts to reconsider their desire to cover certain things? It was like, yes, we will cover reproductive rights and say abortion and birth control are always going to be Necessities, but then do you start writing about maternal mortality, or are you writing about social programs, or women who are working on creating, you know, sort of gray or underground networks to support each other through pregnancies or or reproductive health and reproductive justice? Like, there's just a lot of factors in which it's easy to get an idea derailed because someone thinks that's not an element that matters or is mm-hmm. not versed in the issue, or thinks, oh, well, this might alienate some people that we still want. So, yeah. But I also think that without having a really strong perspective, that's going to leave you. Vulnerable to the forces that are leading magazines to go digital only or shutter entirely. You need to have a strong perspective and brand. And it's why everybody still talks about Teen Vogue as this extremely progressive publication, even though it's... I think also digital only, but they are well known for taking very strong opinionated stances and then doing reporting that is useful to their readers and being unapologetic about that I think helps them a great deal
0: I'm assuming for all those reasons you said you leave glamour, you go freelance and freelancing is also something I haven't discussed much on the podcast. I mean I've done it for brief stints in between things. It was never a long-term plan. How, how long were, were you freelance for? Uh, is it something so- you could have seen doing long-term or were you just...
1: I did it for a year and a half and I do not recommend it as a long-term <laughs> strategy. I mean, frankly, but I was doing just well enough that it made sense to me to continue to do it until I found something that really felt like a good fit. And it allowed me to not apply for or not take jobs that probably would have not gone. I mean, I don't want to say not gone well, but that I would have been considering leaving or wanted to leave after a reasonably short time. And so if, if it doesn't... Make you crazy. I think that it's worth holding out until you know you can make it work, do it. But the hustle of pitching the economy of somebody wanting 1,200 words and wants to pay you $250 and then hunting down said $250 because <laughs> they don't pay you for a month and a half or something. All of that is exactly as stressful and, and difficult as I think the stories go. And there's just no way around it. And the people that I know that are doing freelancing as a long-term plan hustled to a degree that feels almost inhuman. I don't see the economics of it changing very much. The, the thing that was really noteworthy while I was freelancing, and really it was, that was just, I wrote movie reviews. I wrote op-eds for NBCnews.com. I wrote things for all kinds of different places. I mean, I was perfectly happy to do, you know, anything that was going to give me, you know, I like fact-checked again. I worked on book research, whatever kind of contracts I could come across. But that was also another period of time where whole websites were getting laid off. You know, you had the the dual prongs of very young newsrooms, organizing and unionizing and then being recognized and other sites just full on imploding and mm-hmm. laying everyone off. And so every time that happens, you see there's a larger and larger pool of people competing for the same few jobs and a few people just get picked up because they made enough name for themselves. And But I think that's only going to continue. There's no way around the fact that the media industry as it exists at the moment is in pretty massive crisis and there aren't enough jobs to go around. So it is valuable to know how to make the money if you can, but it is, Mm -hmm. it is tough. You have to be really tough in terms of negotiating. And then also being able to stand the low level anxiety that's constantly buzzing. Right. No, (laughs) I mean, uh,
0: when I was freelancing, like at some points I'd like... Get down to my last uh, two hundred R&B or something. Like
1: that.
0: <laughs> and the check would always come in just in the nick of time. Yep. And I mean, I I, I had to do some gigs that were I wouldn't even say are journalism, just because they paid so much the corporate ones, and then I could afford to do the two hundred fifty dollars story for foreign policy or the Atlantic or something. Yeah, and yeah, barely. Yeah, made it through. I yeah. guess one one question <laughs> I ask everybody is: Was there ever any time when you thought you might not make it as a journalist? and when was that and how did you get through it?
1: I think I've had a couple of moments that felt like critical inflection points. One was, was when I was fact-checking at Rolling Stone, honestly. I was frustrated by a certain level of sexism that was baked into the magazine's existence uh-huh. um, where it felt like the firewall between being a copy editor or a fact-checker and actually being someone who was allowed to contribute in a meaningful way felt, it felt insurmountable and I sort of found myself thinking, well, this is just turning into a decently paid dead-end job that has Status mm-hmm. and I spent a lot of time kind of wondering. Okay, well, do I want to get out entirely and just say screw it? This is not worth continuing a fight. And honestly, that was when the Wisconsin protests happened. Sure. <laughs> and so that just kind of fell from the heavens. But right. and the other time was you know was was recently. I had while I was freelancing and looking around for jobs, I was pretty seriously considering what I could do with the skills that I amassed in the past 10, 15 years, and that wouldn't feel quite so doomed. I talked to many people who left journalism and got into content strategy and marketing and working in corporate branding and, you know, doing copywriting for ad agencies. And the refrain was always very much that they were happy to no longer feel like they're kind of flailing to keep their heads above water. But even then I did a lot of talking with my therapist about, you know, feeling comfortable and saying, just if you decide to get out, it doesn't mean you failed. It means that it's a totally messed up industry that is very difficult and taking care of yourself involves a hell of a lot more than one job or one particular type of position. And I got lucky, you know, I, cause I did find something that is very new, but I'm very happy with, but I'm also very glad that I spent the time actually thinking about some of those questions and, and what it would mean if I decided to get out, because I think ultimately it'll help. And if there is a time when I decide that the whole thing is Mm -hmm. no longer viable, all of that stuff will still be sitting in the back of my mind. (laughs) Right, right.
0: And then, so now you're working at uh, Patriot Act with Hassan Minaj. Mm-hmm. So that is, it is TV. And how did that even come on your radar? Did you know somebody or? Well, I
1: didn't know anyone there, but I do know people, several people who made the jump from news and writing and journalism of certain types to working on news comedy shows. I mean, being researchers or producers for places like Full Frontal with Sam V or researching it Last Week Tonight. And, Those jobs always seemed, again, I say news adjacent, but also most of them had a component of rigor and seemed like if I was going to make a jump to something different, potentially find myself lower down the totem pole because going from running a vertical on a major website to fact checking somebody's field piece does seem like a difference, but it seemed like something that was worth giving a shot to. So I just was always looking out to see if there were potential Mm -hmm. positions opening up and always talked to my friends who were working... At these places to see what they felt like. And one of my friends who works for Samantha B. sent me a job listing one day in April saying, this seems like it might interest you. And mm-hmm. it was for a new, this news producer job. So I sent my resume in and they called me the next day. And then I put together some pitches for my edit test and went in and had an, an interview with the head writer and the showrunner and the senior producer and just got a great sense from them and really enjoyed talking. And, and then it kind of just moved from there. So that was the that was middle of April and I started on May 2nd and we're just about to finish up the sixth episode of Cycle 3. So we're halfway through the episode order for Netflix. And it turns out, at least for this show, my hunch was right. And it is a place that seems to really value our new sensibility. We have to think on our feet and we do a lot of writing and do a lot of research and reporting and work closely and collaboratively with other producers and with the writing staff and the graphics team to, Put together in a week a 25 minute miniature lecture. I mean, he's doing funny, nerdy TED Talks about dictators and mm-hmm. uprisings, <laughs> and sometimes about fashion brands like Supreme. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I've seen that one.
0: I will say, yeah, it's it's interesting how these shows like uh, Patriot Act and Last Week Tonight, uh, there are many, I think, are able to do deep dives into certain subjects that I don't know if it would work in other mediums and it mm-hmm. manages to hold your interest. And it doesn't have to be straight what's in the news. You, you, know, you can revisit issues that have always been there, like capital punishment or whatever. And, and it's always been there, but find a new way to make it interesting and make mm-hmm. people interested in this. Thing that people know it's a problem, but they
1: yeah, but it's don't if, want to sit down and read a thousand word magazine <laughs> piece or you know, yeah, I mean you know they're not gonna it's. If you can find the way in and make it engaging, it does end up feeling like a, I don't want to say better because I think that it's not inherently better, but I think that it's a, to find an engaging way to lay out the information that doesn't leave people feeling hopeless. And I mean, it's crazy that the legacy of The Daily Show, which has now been around for 20 years, is that there are these really brilliant comedians who have made it their business to surround themselves with smart reporters and researchers that can do this information intake and digestion and come up with and brainstorm ways to make these things seem interesting. And that is really fun to be a part of. And I'm really excited to go with it for as as long as I can. I mean, I'm not sure what the, the next step is in terms of where I would go from here, but it's great. It's nice to have a space where you actually can go deep into something and and spend time and not be doing it in the evenings or weekends when you're not working your day job because you're freelancing to try and do this very small, very small payment, like piece that's a real passion play and wondering what happens and if people will even look at it. So it's for me right now, it's the best of all possible worlds to do this stuff. And yeah. That's
0: great. So normally I ask people to walk me through a couple stories they've done, but in your case, maybe it makes more sense to pick an episode or a pitch or something like that and walk me through how the process works and yeah, how yeah. you come up with the ideas to how you execute them.
1: I did one of the pitches that I sent in when I was doing my interview process is one that I'm determined to turn into something someday. And it's it's long been a favorite of mine. And so I was very happy, but I think the show should do an episode on Eurovision <laughs> and specifically how you can kind of track the rise of authoritarianism and political tensions through Eurovision itself. I mean, I mean, both through mm-hmm. the acts and through some of the conversations around it. So, for example, there was a few years where after Russia invaded Crimea at the tensions between Russia and Ukraine meant that there were all these arguments about whether certain songs were overtly political or if Russia was trying to gain the system by sending someone in a wheelchair to sing a really inspirational song. Or this year it was held in Tel Aviv. So there was a lot of conversation about, is Israel going to grapple with the Palestinians and inequality? Is anyone going to protest? And it turned out that the only person that did was the band from Iceland. But they were an avant-garde BDS um, industrial performance art group. (laughs) So... <laughs> it was it was inevitable that they were going to do something <laughs> so i had i went walked through you know you can learn a lot about what's going on and this is has been ramping up in recent years and so here are some great examples of how this has happened how far back it goes here are some examples of some videos i mean obviously you want to have sound and video because it's TV show. So here's some some AB stuff you can use and this is why this thing matters. This is why we should care. And now that we know all these things, this is what we can do with it. And so to me, I said, all right, well, you know, actually thinking about the way that we engage with the world and how these countries deal with each other, you know, maybe treating some of these international Olympic style festivals of silliness as frivolous is like that we've passed that and that we need to engage with trash and sparkle culture in a way that, uh, that recognizes that none of these things are immune, that we've already reached a point where it's going to be, you know, politics and and tension will be a part of everything. And, and yeah, maybe let's not wait until there are actual like Nazis from Poland dancing around (laughs) on stage to realize, like to reckon with the fact that things are getting kind of dark out there. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So uh, you've got this good
0: idea and I imagine you take it to the editors and they say it's got potential and how, Do ideas get over the line?
1: There's, I mean, sometimes there are pieces that are ideas that the writers or the producers want to look at. So you do some research. We're changing things around a little bit. But say, you know, you come up with an idea, you write a few paragraphs that very basically outlines and says, this is the... Thing that I think we should do. Then the next process, and they say, all right, this seems interesting. Writing up a, a longer, slightly more detailed, basically two-page outline of what you think the story would be. Doing this, fleshing it out a little bit. That gives you the opportunity to figure out if the idea actually has enough legs and enough meat to mm-hmm. make it to a full episode. Because sometimes an idea that feels really promising, there isn't a lot of new information to find. You know, Not everything is undercovered or needs to be exposed, or maybe things have been covered very extensively and you realize, oh, there's actually not a lot of primary material to dig from. This is mostly just discussed in these news stories. So you put that together, then it kind of goes back around and the decision, they say, all right, if they say yes, then it's the time to assign out and start putting together the research book, which is a document that ends up being, I don't know, 40 to 60 pages, probably. And you have your basic mission statement, which is your basic five paragraph outline of what you're doing, laying out all of the story beats that you think should go there. Mm -hmm. And then you start just putting it together and saying, "All right, first beep. This is what this. This is why this is important." And then there's, you know, are there maps? Are there videos? Are there news stories? Here's what the FCC says X thing is, or this is mm-hmm. the history of Sudan in the last ten years, or like this dictator's history is important. And then you just start building over the course of a couple weeks. Then at you know a later point, you go over the boss and then hand it off to the writers, and then they read through it and they start digesting, writing preliminary outlines, and then you go through the outlines, decide what seems really important and then slowly but surely they start writing the scripts and the scripts get combined and then and then we work through making sure they've understood what we gave them, make sure that things are clear and start building the the graphics and the storyline. So Mm -hmm. it is heavily collaborative. It's not as if they full on take every idea or you know exactly how you put it, but the more organized you can be when you're giving them the research document and the clearer you can be about what you think the really important things are, the better the chance that the story will be clear. The better chance that somebody doesn't latch on to something that kind of ends up being a little bit out in left field and then Uh redirects something to a totally different story. But then again, I've also only been here for six weeks, so I have, I'm in the process of putting together my first research book on my own. So that is, it's a real learning experience, but Mm -hmm. it's fun. I mean, it's like long form, but you don't have to actually do all of the writing. (laughs) (laughs) It's a different, slightly different. So But it it ends up taking away some of the things that frustrate me most about writing long stories.
0: (laughs) Sure. And I imagine the writers, you hand stuff off to them. And, I mean, they can turn anything into entertaining, humorous material. I mean, sometimes it's kind of dark things. Do they ever push back on that? Or are they they good enough they can...
1: Oh, I mean, like once the once the decision has been made to do something, you know, it's I I don't know how often things would necessarily get killed or they, mm-hmm. make those changes, but if you can make the crown prince of Saudi Arabia being a murderous dictator into 20 minutes of comedy you can do pretty much yeah. anything but i think that that it's a real skill that's part of why talking through the pitches and figuring out what you're doing is it's not just a parade of outrages that mm-hmm. people should be angry about or start running around saying this is fucked up there should be some i think people want some sort of hope so it's not right. just not just misery porn and and that's a i think that's a great starting point and yeah i've, I've also just they're just really funny people and they want to Get it right. So you want to make sure that everything is solid and and that they can work their magic with a really funny piece of film or a mm-hmm. you know a strange little detail about something or other.
0: And with it being weekly, mm-hmm. there's always one that has to go at the end of the week, yeah. or w- middle of the week, or whenever the deadline is. I mean, are there late nights? Is it a scramble? Is it manageable? Is it how does that work?
1: Well, it's I think it's manageable for two reasons because there are some very long nights and some very big scrambles. But first of all in general, we're doing like blocks of six episodes, and then there are several weeks, I think four or five weeks between these these blocks. So you're still working and getting, you're doing pre-production, you're working on on research books, you're getting episode ideas into the pipeline, and then you sort of lay out which six you think you're going to do next and when they're going to happen. Mm-hmm. So as that's going on, then you, you're getting ready. So you're not always in production. It means that you have time to not necessarily get ahead, but at least not suddenly find yourself completely scrambling, I think it's fairly rare that you would end up needing to put together an entire episode in a week, like Mm -hmm. a full research book and then getting onto it. But the other reason is that not every producer works on every episode. So you tend to have two news producers uh, for each topic. They try to work it so that people aren't doing one after the other. They tend to end up being on two episodes in a cycle and that doesn't always happen I've definitely seen people and so then that means you're you're just crashing through it starts on Thursday morning there's a script you look through you fact check it you send it off they incorporate your fact changes into the new script and then you got to do another version and then you send it off to the lawyer and the graphics team mm-hmm. is working on pulling things together and making maps and splashes and you know what are the backgrounds of the set look like and then Monday Tuesday Wednesday is The insane part, because Mm -hmm. that's when the taping happens on Wednesday evenings and Monday and Tuesday, you just get there at 8 a.m. and you're there until whatever has decided, they decide whether or not something is happening (laughs) again. Mm -hmm. And so the last three days is a lot of, you're fact checking the scripts and you're watching them revise and revise and revise and revise and and rewrite and rewrite. But you're also looking at every graphic and video element, making sure that everything is correct, that the context is correct, that it's making sure that we've attributed correctly, that everything's got the right style. It's got to get really detail oriented. Yeah. It's like you start with something and it feels very conceptual and you start getting your information. And by the end you're watching to make sure that every pull quote isn't missing like a quotation mark.
0: Right, yeah. <laughs> wow. And uh, yeah. I no, imagine that's exciting as well. And it, it is interesting, the format and how, since it's Netflix and not TV, you can do this different format of six and a break, six and a break. Yeah, break, yeah. Rather than uh, full season, which was probably a schlag if it's every I... week relentlessly.
1: I mean, I um, get, I genuinely do not know how the people at either The Daily Show or Last Week Tonight do it. I mean, the Last Week Tonight is on, I think they're on like It's like 45 or 46 weeks out of the year. Like, It is insane. And granted, they're doing 12-minute pieces that tend to be much more news-pegged, but that stuff is still no joke. They're very intense deep dives as well. And so the level of investment and just energy to do things that turn around so quickly, like... We are very fortunate to have those breaks and also to not be so tied to the news. We want news pegs. We want things that are current. But it is nice that, yeah, you can do something and say, all right, let's do something on death penalty drugs or let's do something on sovereign wealth funds. That was something we did an episode on or corruption in cricket. You can think a little differently, which is really nice
0: i'm not quite sure if you want to talk don't want to talk about this next question That's fine. <laughs> but I, I, w- I am curious if these if the daily show is looking at last week tonight is looking at you as they <laughs> at and they're like well we don't want to do x thing because they already did it or I oh I yeah the, everybody's the benchmarking against each other
1: and they i mean Yes, obviously. Like, If we were going to do something on private prisons, we would absolutely recognize that Oliver's already done that. So we need to find like whatever. If we're going to do anything about it, it has to have a very different take. Yeah, I mean, you still, there's a lot of different shows and they all do slightly different things. But yeah, people don't want to repeat each other or feel like they're getting in on a topic that's been claimed on some level, certain way. And I think that's good. It's not out of negativity or competitiveness. It's very much that if you're going to do a good job, then you need to not be, you know, not retreading what somebody has already done in a really dynamic way.
0: And I imagine, yeah, it helps that, you know, it's not like the old days of TV where everybody has ratings. Yeah, HBO is what, I don't know that their stats are (laughs) out there. I mean, Netflix isn't on TV. They have their stats and I I just like, there's not a common yardstick. So I imagine that helps keep things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, ultimately I think there's the only things I can see as, as metrics people seem to use are have you won a Peabody? And uh, do you have clips that go viral online? <laughs> sure, sure. Um, it's like my show has worked really hard to establish a digital presence on YouTube that is really strong and has extras. But also, the episodes go up in their entirety on YouTube for free oh, really? afterwards. So it's not just... Netflix accessible, which I really like. Yeah. I find that to be cool. And I think, yeah, I guess the Emmys are coming up. So who knows if the head writer and Hassan will sit in the audience while John Oliver wins again, or if they'll be nominated or what, but the metrics are certainly for Netflix. They're totally, nobody has any idea who's watching or what they're doing or what their decision-making process is. But then all you do is just try and make the best Mm -hmm. TV you can and do it in a way that feels like you're unique and yeah, just enjoy the opportunity because who knows what happens from here.
0: <laughs> no, it's very cool. It's exciting that you're starting off into this.
1: Yeah, it definitely feels like a, a new adventure. I It's funny, I was talking at the a new bosses he started a few days before i did and big fan of this guy but we both are print refugees or essentially print uh-huh. re- journalism refugees very recent he had been at harpers and, and then he was at the new republic right before he came and you know we were joking around that the attitude of everyone at the show all of our these new co-workers there was just such a positivity and a lack of gloom that <laughs> Was noticeable from the first day That either of us was there It's just like working in an industry that isn't dying Is, is like surprisingly cool Right, yeah
0: Okay, well I think it's time I get into the Lightning round questions Which i actually yeah. have to pull, pull up, up a list oh
1: um, do- Rosie, do- get down You don't need to be a part of this For those of you at home, Rosie keeps jumping up Onto the sides of the chairs We're sitting on and demanding pets <laughs> okay. What
0: is usually the first thing you check when you wake up in the morning and get your phone or your computer?
1: Usually I check my email.
0: To see if there's anything work-related. Yeah, to
1: see if I've had work emails come in overnight, see if there's a new version of the script, see if I'm, you know, even if I'm just looking at my personal email, if anything interesting is coming through because I have a ton of newsletter subscriptions and stuff that comes in that sometimes I want to scroll through before I get out of bed and take the dog for a walk. Sure. Um, What is a must-read publication that you look at almost every day? I'm trying to think if there's one that's a little bit more exciting than say like, I read the New York times every day, but (laughs) I would actually say, uh, the AV club, the pop culture website, because even though it is not necessarily newsy, it's my absolute go-to when it comes to wanting to read, if I want to read a TV recap or if I'm looking for a movie review or recommendations for music. So it's like, you can get your real hard news and gloom and doom anywhere, but I like trust them very much when it comes to giving me fun stuff. Sure.
0: Is Is there any particular subject matter or anything you read into that uh, interests you that's now related to your work?
1: Yes. I read a lot of stuff that is kind of, I don't want to say theory, but it's like activist theory a little bit. There's been a lot of really interesting feminist writing about witches lately that I've been <laughs> digging a lot. If I read fiction, then that's also a big part of the break from doing stuff. Because I think sometimes it feels like everything can be work. So if I can make a real break from from it. That helps a lot. Sure, sure. I'll ask this one now
0: because often people have to come back to it. But what what is one article or piece or show or whatever that you consumed recently? That stood out to you as particularly good.
1: Honestly, I'm going to say the second season of Barry on HBO. Oh,
0: okay.
1: Uh, I was like that, and I, Chernobyl. I thought was really good and depressing, but I think Barry more than that because it's just such a weird show with such <laughs> odd things and characters happening. That yeah, that that has that felt like a real escape. But also, it's just it's so strange and different. It felt like a real break from all the other stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I've seen some of it. I enjoyed. Is Twitter important to you?
1: Uh, yeah. I try to spend. As little time on the hell side as possible (laughs) now, but I've made a lot of friends in real life that started out as people I knew through Twitter. I think there's a really strong community, especially of women journalists that I connected to through there that is good for boosting each other's work, but also just being supportive. And I'm not much of a weird Twitter person, but every (laughs) once in a while, I mean, there's some fun stuff that I can find. So it it hasn't, it's not all bad, but yeah, I've definitely benefited a lot from having it and using it to build relationships.
0: Do you send any tweets or is it mostly just? Oh,
1: I definitely tweet pretty frequently about sometimes about very weird things, sometimes stories I think that are interesting and promoting my work. But yeah, sometimes I just tweet random GIFs and videos of <laughs> different stuff. But yeah, no, I definitely am a fairly frequent tweeter. Sure. <laughs>
0: um, what what other social media do you use, if any, and how?
1: I, use, I have Instagram, which is sometimes the pictures of people and activities and generally probably just more for the dog, which is fine. I mean, who doesn't love a dog? <laughs> and then, I mean, Rosie has her own Instagram, which is probably the one that brings me greater joy than... My own. And other than that, that's pretty much it. Like I have a, a Facebook account, but it's more to just be able to send love to family members and yeah. you know elderly aunts and uncles and not anything else.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's weird how Facebook has become a very like family thing for me too. Um, yeah. Probably maybe
1: for a lot of people.
0: Let's see. And then these ones are yes or no questions. Take Ooh, them yes. as you will. Glenn Greenwald. Yes
1: or no? Absolutely not. Really? Oh my, have you seen how insane he's been lately? The man has lost his goddamn mind.
0: Okay, you're the first person. Normally people are <laughs> like, eh, I, I, yeah, yeah. But- no,
1: he's, um, he's currently defending an absolute, like a reprehensible troll, like faux journalist. And, you know, he throws down with Syria conspiracy theorists. And I just can't rock with that, no matter how good the intercept of the Stone Papers were.
0: Sure. Vice Media, yes or no?
1: I actually have to say yes because I know a lot of really talented women who survived being sexually harassed there and have gone on to do great things. So yeah. Yes yes for its alumni and no for its posturing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> sure. WikiLeaks, yes or no?
1: No. They're uh, I mean yes in two thousand nine, absolutely not now. They're super creepy now. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Julian Assange? Oh no. No, no. no. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and it's weird because I do remember times when all of I had very different thoughts and opinions on several of these things. But if I'm going off of instinct, yeah, I'm not
0: no. Any suggestions for a yes or no question?
1: Is it okay like punching Nazis, yes or no? Oh,
0: yeah. That's yeah, a good question.
1: That's that's one. I am I'm firmly yes, but I would okay. love to know what other people think. Yeah. And then also deplatforming, yes or no. I mean in the idea of do you give the people air is it worth covering people like milo or richard spencer or whoever the latest is like and i think that goes for stuff that's happening in the administration too but i'd be curious if people have feelings about about that yeah
0: like climate change nihilists and things like that yes yes
1: exactly like uh, do you really need to have like a quote from jim inhofe in an article about climate change just in order to say but all scientific studies suggest that this is in fact real like guys we that's you're really (laughs) soft peddling it.
0: Yeah. If you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be?
1: Uh, Nellie Bly. Okay. Who's that? She was a journalist around the turn of the century in the early 20th century. She basically did the Geraldo investigation into the Staten Island mental hospitals, but in like 1910 or 1919, I forget now when she did, but it was the first couple decades. She did, she wrote a A book called 10 Days in the Madhouse. So she went undercover to a women's mental institution and uncovered and exposed a lot of really abusive stuff. But so then she she was a pioneering stunt journalist. She also decided to see if she could actually circumnavigate the world in 80 days or less Mm -hmm. Um, because the Jules Verne, she was like, oh, is it... Is it actually possible? And I think she did. But uh, she's kind of a really fascinating, early, plucky reporter. I had a book about her, or had a book that had a little story about her when I was little. And I always thought she was the coolest seeming writer that had ever existed. So Mm -hmm. I would absolutely love to get in on her career. Cool.
0: I'll have to look her up. One thing I, this wasn't on the list, but uh, (laughs) was debating with uh, somebody, is whether it's ever okay for journalists to misrepresent themselves. There have been cases like pretending to be crazy, Mm -hmm. thrown in a mental asylum or in Chicago there was a famous case where they set up a fake business just to see all the bribes that would be solicited yeah and, things yeah. Like that. and I'd, I'd be curious if you have an opinion on where you draw the line on that stuff
1: I think there's I you know I think the line in in a major way will depend on like what you're trying to get I mean in in the same way that if you're gonna do a takedown you should be punching up. I think that the level of transparency would depend on, it's like, are you trying to infiltrate an ICE prison? Not representing that you're a journalist if you're exposing a cult or you're talking right. about violations of institutional violations, I think is very different than misrepresenting yourself if you're talking to, I mean, obviously, you'd be putting people in danger if you did it and you were talking to activists. Right. Um, so I think that you should tread carefully, do it as sparingly as possible, but really, like, think, think hard and hopefully you're doing it to expose something bad. And in that case, I think it's okay to be, Mm -hmm. um, I mean, don't lie. I think that straight up lying is bad, but if you, don't disclose information. And, you know, I think that's a great example of that is um, Shane Bauer's book, American Prison, which started out as a Mother Jones piece that he did. He applied to be a private prison guard. Mm-hmm. I mean, he used his regular name. He, d- he just didn't say he was on assignment. And they hired him and he, he was doing reporting. Mm-hmm. That seems to me like a perfectly reasonable way to, to go about sure. being less than straightforward.
0: What, what is one thing you wish you could travel back and tell your younger
1: self? Oh my gosh. I feel like this is kind of kind of a tough one but i would say oh actually no i I do know it would be don't take that tequila shot from the california delegate because i got the norovirus at the 2016 republican (sighs) convention and and then almost vomited on john bolton so i think that all things considered i would i would have warned myself away from getting the norovirus while (laughs) having to wander around surrounded by republicans And I know that's cheating a little bit because it's not something as simple as you're going to be okay or pay off your credit card before, but...
0: (laughs) No, that's good. That's good. But no, that's good and specific. Uh, uh, Let's see. What is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media property about journalists. So like a meta thing.
1: A meta about thing about journalists. Like a, um, so the,
0: the wire season five.
1: Yeah. Kind of I, I like love Shattered Glass, the movie about Stephen Glass at the New Republic in the 90s. The he oh, he made so. a he's a he fabricated a bunch of stories. Maybe it was a huge scandal and it really made a, a big splash. But they did a movie about it in the mid 2000s with Hayden Christensen of all people actually doing really well. So it's like Luke or Anakin Skywalker, decent actor. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Peter Sark Guard and Chloe Seven are all in it. But it's such a fascinating cautionary tale. I mean, just as a way to remember This Way lies Madness and Despair. <laughs> yeah. And there is like a, a great scene where right before he gets caught that he's in the newsroom and it's late at night and he's all by himself and you just sort of get this weird sense of... <gasps> it's like the dread and I, I it's like visceral to me. That, that frustration and tension that when you're working on a story and it's not happening and you don't know what to do and then yeah. the panic starts to rise and... I just love that movie I mean I also love Like His Girl Friday Because who doesn't But from a From a serious one I think I like that Just because it seems Like such a, a good reminder That mediocre white dudes Get away with a lot And <laughs> sometimes The comeuppance Is fun to see <laughs> uh-huh. I'll
0: have to check that out I, I d- didn't hear about it at all And then I believe The la- the last question is Qualifications aside If you couldn't be a journalist What job would you do?
1: Ooh I would direct action movies Sweet Yeah Yeah I am uh, Yeah in addition to Loving feminism politics, Finnish science fiction, and uh, women's soccer, I am obsessed with the Fast and Furious series, the John Wick movies, the Purge mm-hmm. movies, and I would absolutely like give an arm and a leg to direct Vin Diesel doing a crazy car chase across <laughs> something.
0: <laughs> good answer always good to end on Vin Diesel.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it is basically my you know my personal motto. <laughs>
0: So uh, yeah, that's it. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about? You feel good about
1: it? No, that? I'm feeling pretty great about it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah. yeah. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Meredith Clark of the show Patriot Act. I'll post links to some of the things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave a five star review. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you could also write a positive review. It gets the podcast more attention in Apple Podcasts and other apps. You can find us on Twitter at foreignpod or tweet about us with the hashtag hashtag foreign pod and above all if you know someone who might like the podcast please recommend it to them our show's music is a track called love chances by mckay beats there's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page please look for the next episode to be posted on sunday august 11th until then i'm jake spring and this is foreign correspondence